Luke 19:45 to 28. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied to them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed this among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Why didn't you believe him? If we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it's from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Father, we come to you humbly asking your help. Uh, we know how easily our hearts are distracted by the many different distractions and temptations. We know the reality of sin on the inside. We know the discouragement and darkness surrounding us on the outside. And so often, the clamor of all these things seems to drown out the voice of your spirit, leading us to draw close to you through prayer and your word. So this morning, would you bring a level of peace and even tranquility so that we would hear what you were saying to us by your word? Would we see Jesus doing the work of cleansing us from the inside out so that your people can draw close to pray and worship by the word that has been given? Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There's a place that you can go to see the finest, flashiest examples of fashion today. A place where you can go where day after day there's new installments showing people wearing the finest vests, handcrafted Italian shoes, and even very, very expensive belts. A place where there's always a fresh look, but the one thing these looks have in common is they communicate that the person wearing these things has both power and money. Uh, where is this place? Uh, well, it's a place created by a man named Benjamin Kirby. Uh, he has an Instagram account, and he started after watching some worship videos and noticing that the people in those videos were well wearing rather ostentatious, even opulent garments, uh, the finest shoes and jackets that you could find. So he started something called Preachers in Sneakers. Um, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but really not. It's showing how people claiming to be doing the work of the gospel sure seem to be more concerned with profit and being popular, more so than they're concerned with prayer and authentic worship 
of God. Now, my guess is that you don't want me to get up here to preach uh, wearing my yard work clothes. Uh, Obviously, there's a a line somewhere where you've gone too far when it comes with putting your finest foot forward when it comes to worship of God. And yet, once you cross that line, it's pretty obvious something has gone wrong. Uh, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of revulsion as I think of the gospel being presented as just another way to profit off people or to make a sort of popularity contest. Of course, it's not just a a new phenomenon. Uh, This has been going on for a long time. Back in Martin Luther's day, this is one of the things that started him having his disquiet about the church in his day. He made a visit to Rome, and what he saw from the Pope and all the mighty buildings that had been built disgusted him because it sure seemed like people were more interested in getting wealthy than authentic worship of God. Well, what does Jesus think about this? Does Jesus care if our religion is really just a pretense for profiting and growing popular? Well, this morning we see from Luke's gospel that Jesus has no patience whatsoever for this form of religion. That he's going to come and clean house of the people in his day. Because Jesus won't be satisfied until his people will worship an authentic prayer under the authority of God's word. Now, that's what we'll see this morning from this passage in Luke. That Jesus won't stop until we're worshiping by his word. And he'll keep cleansing us from the inside out until that happens. We're going to move through this passage in two sections, which are going to present two different alternative ways you can go about in your religion and worship of God. I hope we'll choose the right path, the one following Jesus, hanging on his every word. The first of those two sections is in verses 45 through 46. It is the alternative between prayer or profit. After just catching up with us, uh, we have been walking our way through Luke's gospel. And a long chunk of it has concerned itself with Jesus walking his way to the city of Jerusalem. Ten whole chapters of this book have been concerned with Jesus and his disciples on the road, drawing ever closer to the place where his mission must be accomplished. We left off the last year, our final installments, with Jesus finally reaching the city. But while it started with a note of triumph, with the crowds and his disciples greeting him and singing praises for the fact that God's anointed had finally arrived, it quickly turned to tears as we saw Messiah Jesus weeping over the city and the people whom he knew were about to reject him. Well, now we see Jesus actually entering the city and going to the most important place within it, the Temple Mount itself. And we'll see why his sorrow was so deep and why judgment surely will be coming because what Jesus finds is not authentic worship, but a corruption of what God has intended, a place that's turned into a mere pursuit a prophet. Verse 45 through, 40, through 46, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, 
My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Uh, Luke does not spare any words, just a short description. He tells us of something very dramatic that Jesus did. He made his way up to this amazing temple that Herod had built. Big gleaming blocks of marble. Amazing decorations and ornaments. A sense of awe and transcendence. Everyone knew this is where God dwelled. This is where you came to draw near to him. This is where the priests and the sacrifices and the prayers on behalf of the people. This is the place it all happens. But Jesus goes into that sacred place and he makes a holy disruption. He starts flipping over tables and driving people out violently. The word Luke uses for Jesus driving out the people selling there is the same word he used earlier in the book for Jesus casting demons out of people. It is a word of conflict. And it's used to describe what Jesus does in the most sacred place you could go in the world. What was it that led Jesus to take such drastic action? Well, his words tip us off to what was going on. There's two problems. Uh, Jesus quotes two different passages from the Old Testament that show us the poison that was coursing through the veins of the people of God as they drew close to the place where God had brought them to worship. Uh, The first is a quotation that comes from Isaiah 56. My house shall be a house of prayer. Uh, To understand what Jesus is doing here, I think you need to read the longer section from just the fragment that he quotes from Isaiah 56, 7. So let me read the three verses, the longer chunk of this prophecy of Isaiah. And the foreigners, foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him, besides those already gathered. Isaiah gave a prophecy that there was going to be a day coming uh, when God would reach out his arms further than even the outcasts of his people. He would reach further than the margins of Israelite society, even out to the nations, to the peoples, uh, to the those who called upon foreign gods, who did not know the God of Israel, that they would find that there was a place where they could come and draw close and offer their prayers and be heard to know the one and the the only true God of heaven, Yahweh himself. That place was the temple. Isaiah looked forward to a day where The temple of God would be a place for prayer for the nations. And in fact, if you look back to the founding of Solomon's temple, when he dedicated it, in his dedication prayer, he prayed that God would do this very thing. 
that this would be a place where people that were far from the God of Israel could draw close to have their prayers heard and find favor with the God of heaven. From the very beginning, the temple was the place where God intended not just for his people to draw close to his presence and pray, but also for the nations to do the same thing. But there was a problem in Jesus' day. See, the prayers of the nations were no longer able to be offered up to Yahweh because the place set aside for them had turned into just another common place for commerce. Uh, you see, the way the temple was laid out, there were different courts to it. If you weren't an Israelite, there was one place where you were allowed to go into and you were allowed to go no further. That was called the court of the Gentiles. Uh, that court was a place set aside for you as a foreigner to come, offer up a sacrifice that someone else would offer on your behalf, and to pray to know that you would be heard by the God of heaven. But in Jesus' day, something had happened. That court had been filled with all the buzz, buzzing and bleeding of everyday business. Uh, you see, the temple was a place where you needed to come if you were to make your uh, obligations to God fulfilled. Uh, the people needed to pay a half shekel tax each year. Uh, but the problem was your Roman currency wasn't any good in the temple, so you had to have someone to exchange that money. And the court of the Gentiles was a very convenient place to set up your business doing just that. At the same time, if you needed to have a sacrifice offered, and you had made a pilgrimage all the way from where you lived to Jerusalem, chances are you didn't bring your own sheep or goat with you, which meant that another cottage industry sprouted up, and that was selling you suitable animals to offer up to pre, uh, for the priest to sacrifice on your behalf. Now, all of that may have been legitimate. It was meeting a real need people had. But it was being done in the very place that was supposed to be set aside for prayer and worship, which meant there was no room for the nations to come and pray. All because God's people, at least their leaders, cared more about profit than they cared about true worship. There's a second thing that was happening, and you can see that from the second quotation that Jesus uses there. But you have made it a den of robbers. This time the quotation is coming from another prophet, from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Uh, we don't have time to go deep into Jeremiah's sermon denouncing the people of God in his day. But it's safe to say that they have long left behind authentic worship of God and replaced it for the mere formality and appearance of it. They're sort of people that would gather to worship God on Sabbath, the high holy days, to do the outward forms of religion, but on the inside, they were a far different sort of people. Every other day, they lived for themselves and their desires. And they engaged in all sorts of thievery and lying and uncleanness. So God sent a prophet to denounce their hypocritical religion. Well, Jesus uses this quotation to describe what's happening from the very top 
of God's people, uh, the very head of the snake that's ruining the whole thing. Uh, What was it that the leadership of the people were doing? Well, it was caring more about profit than they cared about God's people authentically worshiping. Uh, You see, there should have been someone who put a stop to what was happening in the court of the Gentiles from the very beginning. Uh, That person should have been the high priest. Surely, if anyone had been given the authority to say, this is unbefitting for what should happen in God's house, it would have been him. Uh, But that was not the way that he went about his business. See, he was a man who knew where he could earn a buck. And he found a way to make sure all that commerce happened and that he got a healthy slice of the pie with each and every transaction. Uh, That's right, all that business happening was enriching the high priest and his family, which is why Josephus, one of the historians of the day, described the high priest as the great procurer of money. Not exactly a title you want for your religious leader. As a result, the temple no longer could... Uh, no longer could accomplish the mission that God had given for it. The nations could not draw close and find peace and favor with the God of heaven through prayer and offerings. Uh, Those who were far off could not become those who were known by God, all because people cared more about glitter and gold than letting people draw close to God. Now, what are we supposed to take from this? What does Luke intend for us to draw in terms of applications from this deplorable scene? Well, I think one of the applications is to beware of profiteering preachers. Uh, People who come in the name of God from various religions who are really more about making a buck than they are about leading anyone into authentic worship. It's one of the things you can find across religions. Uh, We've heard from people who've gone over to Thailand and seen the way that the Buddhist monks operate, how they use fear to manipulate people into offering up sacrifices that they really can't afford. And yes, of course, they become enriched in the process. Of course, they're not the only ones. Uh, We Christians have many people coming, claiming to be preaching Christ who really just are looking to get wealthy themselves, building bigger platforms and finding greater and greater giving bases for their own pockets to be lined. Uh, Brothers and sisters, there's a reason why so much of the New Testament, when warning about false teachers, connects that false teaching to a love of money. It's one of the fastest ways you can find someone that doesn't actually care for your well-being It's actually not preaching a true gospel. If they're first and foremost seem to be motivated more by profit than by you being able to draw into the presence of God. Uh, We should be the sort of church that's discerning, especially when it comes to raising up leaders. Uh, There's a reason why scripture gives us the qualifications it does. Uh, An elder cannot be someone who is a lover of money. So we shouldn't be so quick to just look to the people in our congregation that have the highest paying jobs or even influence in society. In fact, that should be something that we should weigh heavily against what the other uh, characteristics of godliness. Are they known for generosity? 
Are they people of prayer? What is it that God values most? Well, it's certainly not turning a prophet. The second thing we need to keep in mind is the priority of worship that the worship in the temple got off base on is certainly one that churches could fall into. We need to remember that a church is certainly not a business. Success when it comes to a body of believers that gathers to worship God and uh, carry out the tasks of the Great Commission together is, is not measured based on turning a profit, uh, finding a unique market share, uh, returning shareholder value. Uh, we're not like every other organization out in society. Now, all the resources that we have are from God and to be used for his purpose. And that means we need to ask questions about how it is that the Lord would have us use the things he's given us for his glory. Are we using the space, the money, and the people, and all he's given us so that people can draw near to the God of heaven, to know and be known by him? Or are we just perpetuating an organization, trying to gather more and more resources forever as if profit is our mission? Now, I can't move on before making a more personal application to each of us, because after all, the temple of God is not a physical structure where people draw near to anymore. In fact, Jesus dwells in the hearts of his people. Individually and collectively, we are the place where the Holy Spirit lives, where true worship occurs, and where the presence of God can be found. And if Jesus was zealous for the physical temple to be cleansed in his day, well, sure he, surely he's zealous that our hearts would be purified as well. So ask yourself the question, what things are getting in the way of your prayer life? Are there thoughts? activities? Are there time sinks that so fill up your attention that there's no space for you to get down on your knees and pray? Uh, Jesus won't stop until he brings all of God's people into authentic worship by his word. And maybe that's what he's going to do in your life in a powerful way in 2024. Maybe he'll turn your attention away from other good things to the most important thing, to seeking him in prayer and knowing the blessing of his presence. Brothers and sisters, don't resist him, uh, though it may be uncomfortable when Jesus starts turning over tables and driving out certain things in your life. Uh, what you are gaining is far greater than what you're losing. Let him do his work and find joy in what replaces what you lose. Draw near to God through Jesus Christ in your prayer life in 2024. All right, well, we saw Jesus cleanse out the Temple Mount, but what's he going to do now? Uh, now that Jesus has removed all that filth and he has access to the temple, what activity is he going to fill his time with? Well, the answer is, He's going to preach, which leads us to our second set of alternatives in our worship. What's more important, God's word or man's praise? God's word or man's praise? We'll pick it up in verse, not verse 47, that's not right, verse 43. 
I'm uh, sorry, no, I got my chapters mixed up here. Uh, verse 47 is right. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Uh, Luke describes Jesus as using this time of the newly cleansed temple to go about his ministry of preaching. Uh, the way he says it, it was something that happened for some time. Day after day, you could find Jesus in the same spot doing the same thing, preaching the word of God. Oh, sure, there were some people that weren't very happy about that, mainly the religious leaders of the day who had seen their revenue stream cut off and were seeing their respectability challenged. So they were looking for some opportunity to trap Jesus and destroy him. But it seems like they didn't have a chance to do so for quite some time because God's people were hanging on every word that came out of Jesus' mouth. Don't you love the way Luke describes that? What must it have been like for God's people to be in God's place, to hear God's words spoken by the one who is the very word of God, telling them what God is like and what he wants for them, revealing the very mysteries of God in a way that no one else could because Jesus is the one who speaks with the very authority of his Father in heaven. Well, as the narrative continues, we come to a day, we're not told how long, but at some point, the opportunity did come up for the uh, religious leaders of the day to try and destroy Jesus. And they did so by way of a trap. Pick it up with me in chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? They think a direct confrontation with Jesus is what will get them what they want. So they walk up and they ask a very blunt question. Jesus, just who do you think you are? Uh, what gives you the right to kick out all the commerce, to take control of the temple, and to stand up and claim to speak on God's behalf? Just who do you think you are? Now realize the rabbis back in that day, they cared a lot about chains of authority. Uh, they didn't get up and say, this is what God says. Uh, they got up and said something like, well, I study, studied many years with Rabbi so-and-so, who was a very important man who studied with Rabbi so-and-so before him. And did you know that Rabbi so-and-so said this, and so I say this to you now. The whole thing was a house of cards of authority built upon the authority of other men. But Jesus was different. The crowds marveled at Jesus because he spoke as someone who had authority that didn't come from other people, but directly from his Father in heaven. So they come to him with a good question. Just, Jesus, how is it that you can claim such authority for yourself? Now, to be sure, Jesus will answer that question in 
fairly short period of time when he's put to the question in the events leading to his ultimate death, it is answering that question that will lead to his crucifixion. Jesus is not afraid to answer it. Yet Jesus is also the one who is setting the terms about when that set of events will happen. And that time is not here yet. So Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own, one that they're not going to be able to answer. Verse 3, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me this, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus asks a brilliant question. Uh, a question that gives them no good answer as Luke spells out their thinking. Uh, he asks them about the forerunner, the one who announced his coming, John the Baptist, Jesus' own relative. Asked him, the, that ministry John did, where he was preaching a message of repentance and calling people to come and be baptized as a part of that repentance. Was that an act that ultimately had the authority of God behind it? Or was it just something that some guy did? Now, why was that putting them in such a hard position? Well, it's because they cared about the opinions of men, and they were on record for what they thought about John. Uh, the leaders had not gone and been baptized by John. They had, by their actions, shown that they did not think John was legitimate. But they were greatly dismayed when the countryside. It seemed like every single person went and was baptized by that troublemaker. And even to this day, people still held John as a true prophet. So their two options were both not good. Uh, one, they could side with the people, say John was a prophet, but in so doing have to admit that they were wrong and immediately lose standing and respectability. Or second, they could say what they really thought. John is just a troublemaker. He's a false prophet. But if they did that, then the people might react by coming after them. Because the people know what to do with false prophets back in that day. You, you stoned them according to the law. So because they feared men more than they cared about the truth of God's word, they could say nothing. They responded back to Jesus by saying, we won't tell you what we think. And a completely lame answer. And it gives Jesus the perfect opening to say to them that I'm not going to answer you either. Now, what are we to take from the hopeless face plant from the religious leaders under the questioning of Jesus? Well, I think the negative example of the religious leaders of the day should be a warning to us that we need to care more about God's word than about the popularity that we have before people. More, we need to care more about what God says than what people think of us. I realize every generation of Christians has to face this same question, even if it comes in different forms. Uh, what, what is the ultimate authority in your life? Is it the consensus of the community around you? The things people think are believable and respectable and the things that seem like right and upstanding people should believe? 
Or are they the very words that come out from the mouth of the Lord? A couple generations ago, the dilemma was over the miraculous things that the Bible taught. Uh, People were embarrassed by so many miracles in the Bible that science seemed to have made unbelievable. There was a theologian who was embarrassed by such things. He said that he found it impossible to believe in the virgin birth living in the age of the electric light bulb. In other words, if you've been paying attention to science, then you must know all that miraculous stuff was just made up. Well, that was the temptation of that generation, and many Christians fell into that ditch, trying to be respectable in front of their neighbors, in the circles of academia, and in so doing, they lost the authority of God's word. In our day, the pressure comes from a different angle. Uh, People now find it unbelievable that God would dare to tell us that he made us in his image, male and female. That God would dare to tell us what to do with our bodies and how and what type of people we are to love or not love. In our day, that is the thing that seems to be out of bounds with what a reasonable, wise person would think. Which means we're left with the same question. What is the authority? Does it come from the opinions of man or from the very word of God? We have a church have tried to clarify where we stand on this with one of our core values, the authority of the word of God. Uh, We don't have the right to omit or edit or revise anything that God says in his word. Uh, We are to hear it, to take it to heart, and where our hearts are out of alignment with it, to correct ourselves, not seek to correct it. So let's get straight in our minds and our hearts this very day that we want to be the sort of people that hang on every word that God has given us. The words found in the Bible, the words of Jesus himself given to us by his spirit. Secondly, we need to ask that question of authority of the man, Jesus. It's a very good question. Just what gives him the right to say the things that he said? Uh, Precious and I saw a movie last week about C.S. Lewis. Uh, It's called C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant uh, Convert. Uh, It was a stage play that was turned into a movie about the life of C.S. Lewis, specifically about how he went from being an atheist, a very intellectual atheist, to being one of the most intellectual Christians that's ever lived. Along the way, Lewis had quite a few really big questions he wrestled with. But one of the most pivotal moments came when he was confronted by some of his Christian academic friends with the authority claims of Christ. At this point, Lewis was willing to grant there must be a God out there. He was willing to grant that Jesus was some sort of good teacher that he knew could teach us something about relating to God, but his friends insisted that wasn't enough. If you take the authority claims of Jesus seriously, there's no middle ground about him. Uh, Jesus dares to claim to be God incarnate. He dares to claim that he speaks on behalf of God. He dares to claim that he died for the sins of the world. He dares to claim that he has the authority to forgive sins of sinners of all types. 
He dares to claim that one day he will be the one to judge everyone. He dares to claim that he rose from the dead and that one day he will come back bodily to the earth. All that led to what has been commonly called C.S. Lewis's trilemma. You must decide what you think about Jesus. Either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord of all. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I don't know how much you've absorbed about Christianity and the Bible and Jesus, but sooner or later, you will have to wrestle with this authority claim that the Bible clearly presents Jesus as making. We would love to, as a church, come alongside you and help you to understand what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. But do you, have you wrestled with the reality that Jesus claims that he and he alone can be the one to bring you into a true relationship with God? The Bible says he can do that because he is the one who died on a cross for sinners of all types, who rose from the dead to conquer death, And now he's the one that can offer us forgiveness with God and indeed eternal life. But he does require from us repentance from our sins and full faith that he is who he claims to be. Friend, no matter where you are in your journey, if you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus like that by faith, um, ask someone before you leave today. Uh, They're a Christian. They would love to help you. Uh, understand more about Jesus and what he claims about himself. To those of us who are Christians this morning, I want to end this sermon on a note of encouragement by way of that authority claim of Jesus. You realize that Jesus has, of course, made claims over every inch of your life and over this world. And that, in fact, is good news for you and I who have come to God through him who call him our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. Because when we find ourselves living through times of despair and darkness in the world around us, we remember that Jesus has promised to be with us even to the end of the age. When we find ourselves wasting away and our physical frame is failing, we remember his promise that even as he has been resurrected and glorified, that we too will inherit a body like his. And even when we find ourselves struggling and stumbling and failing, falling into sins of various types in our walk as Christians, we remember that he has promised that he will complete the good work that he's begun within us, even until the day of his return. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus won't stop until all of God's people are to worship him in spirit, in truth, under the authority of his word. And that's good news for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your authority over our lives. That, that, we not, that we need not fear what the future might bring. That we need not grow despondent 
even over the remaining sin in our hearts. That we know that you are zealous, that your people would worship your Father in spirit and in truth. And that you won't stop until that happens in perfect purity, in glory forever. Oh Jesus, we look forward to the day when our struggle will be over. When we won't have to contend against the devil in our own flesh. When we will see you and be like you. But until that day, Jesus, we trust you and that your word, which upholds the very universe we live in, that your word also has say over our lives. So Jesus, we confess that you are Lord and we trust you with our very souls. And now we lift up our voices to you in worship, declaring that there is no one else that can bring us into the presence of God. No one else that can allow our prayers to be heard because no one else paid the penalty that was due for sinners like us. Oh, Jesus, help us to worship now in a way befitting of you, our Savior, our friend. We pray in your name. Amen.